Hey, this is John in Seattle. And when I'm not telling terrible dad jokes to anyone who will listen, I'm Stacking Benjamins. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Duggan. Has your attitude toward money changed as you've aged? I know mine has. I now espouse a really more is better attitude. Today, we'll hear from our roundtable how their thoughts about spending have shifted. Let's welcome a guy who's aged a lot from LenPenzo.com. It's LenPenzo? And the woman behind the Econo-Me conference coming to Cincinnati in November, Diana Miriam. And finally, the guy this reviewer says loves himself immensely, it's OG. Later, who cares about money if your body isn't playing along? Today, we welcome the man helping people get in shape and lose weight from MetPro, Will Pepper Questions at Angelo Poli. Finally, Will Magnify Anonymous's money, who wonders if he's missing anything in his records today to get reimbursed from his HSA for health expenses later. And I'll get your muscles working with my hard-hitting trivia question. And now, a guy who was born cheap as ever and still loves Goodwill, it's Joe Saucy Nothing I like better than finding that board game that's long been out of print at a Goodwill store. Just huge win. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Treasures at the Thrift Shop podcast. I'm Joe Salcihi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And we've got a great crew for you today to talk about changing money habits and money thoughts. But first, across the card table from me, again, celebrating the weekend, it's Mr. OG. And celebrating another whole month to do my taxes. So <laughs> just, yes. normally I would be a day late right now. Able to procrastinate for another 29 days. I'm still a month early. It's fantastic. And a guy who is early for everything. uh, I I don't know where I'm going with that. From deep under Los Angeles, it's Mr. Len Penzo. Are you really early, Len? Joe, that was the worst segue. That is in your pantheon of segues. That was the worst segue I've ever heard on the Stacking Benjamin Show. Hitting new lows. And it's been a long, it's been a lot (laughs) of them too. How are you, man? I'm doing just fine. It's, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun there with our live podcast there last week. And uh, it was nice to get out of the basement, but uh, myself out of the bunker. And uh, it's nice to be back in the bunker, though, where it's a little safer. It was, it was, it was <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, and kind of weird having people comment while you're doing a podcast. Like it's, you're getting this immediate feedback that we're not used to. We're like, wow, somebody's actually laughing at that. What's up with that? Yeah, that's that's definitely scary. I, I, you know, positive for me was I got to see some neighbors that I hadn't seen in a long time. You know, so just being out outside the bunker. There, I mean, they were there, wondering what the heck. You know, who they haven't seen that guy in a long time? And uh, yeah, so it was it was really nice. I had a good time. For people who didn't hear last week's episode, Len actually had to leave the bunker to get a signal. Uh, and by the way, it took us twenty minutes today to get a signal as well. <laughs> Yeah, sorry about that. And so everybody sees Len's paleness walking down the street. And the woman who runs the Economy Conference in Cincinnati, I'm super happy she's back with us. About time, Dinah Miriam's here. How are you? 
I'm awesome. I'm awesome. I actually celebrated a birthday a few days ago. Just got back from the Grand Canyon. So we're keeping the party going with you guys. Happy to be here. I thought there was some analogy there, like like conflating the Grand Canyon with your birthday, like putting the two of those together. But no. No, I just went there to celebrate. Yeah. Like, like for Cheryl's <laughs> birthday this year, it was her 50th, Diana. So we went to Death Valley. Like we, ah. we really went there. Yes. So, well, it's, it's my shack year this year, so it's going to be pretty grand. I'd say. So somebody, there was a blogger recently that said, skip the grand Canyon. What did you think? Oh, it's awesome. It's incredible. Don't you got to go? Well, I'm with you. I don't think skipping the grand Canyon is great. I just went, I, we, we just went. In fact, I think I may have gotten COVID while I was at the grand Canyon. So. Oh boy. Yeah. I, I can't figure out how I got COVID because it was the Grand Canyon hiking White Sands National Park. And then you didn't take the burrow down. I did. I did not No, Like the Brady Bunch. <laughs> yeah, right. Is that, is that too old? Is a Brady Bunch riding donkeys <laughs> down the Grand Canyon? Is that too old a reference? I saw a Brady's Bunch the other day and I was like, I'm going to watch this. And I'm watching, I go, this is in far too great of contrast for the TV for this to be old. It turns out they actually made a new Brady Bunch. Oh man. No. Yeah, absolutely. They did. I didn't, couldn't, you know, I was like, there's no way they were in 4k back in the seventies and eighties. <laughs> Brady Bunch of four, Brady Bunch were in 1k. <laughs> no, what the heck that is. Hey, we got a great show today. We're going to talk about your changing money habits and money thoughts over the years. But first, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, we have Diana here. We got OG here. Len's here. Let's get this party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Well, our inspiration for today's chat comes to us from an award-winning blogger, The Purple Life, and you'll find her at apurplelife.com. She always has interesting stories about retiring in 2020 at age 30. And uh, her blog has a very colorful title, this particular blog post, From Frugal to F*** It, The Evolution of My Thoughts on Spending Money. I want to ask you all, because the way I evolved money-wise didn't really track with the Purple Life. Uh, Purple Life started early on growing up frugal, unnecessarily frugal, was raised by a single mom, and really money was tight. And so even in college, because things were tight, she stayed very, very frugal during that time. Diana, we'll start with you. Early, early money patterns, early money thoughts, uh, high school, college age, uh, where were you on the spend money scale? Yeah, I think in college and in my twenties, I had the attitude of like, I'll figure this out later. You know, like I just didn't think about it 
you know, I wasn't mindful of my spending. I'd say I was mindlessly spending because in my mind, I was going to be making millions one day, right? I was going to figure this out later when I was making so much more money. So this debt that I had was just going to be really easy to handle later. It's a terrible financial plan. That needless was, to say. That was me too. I'm like, this English creative writing degree, that's going to come in great. I'm going to make tons of money. <laughs> Actually, that's going to be the next great American novelist at the time. What was your degree? I, I have a degree in marketing. In marketing. Okay. Well, you yeah. could have made millions. You probably did because you retired early. Well, I quit my job, but I did not retire early. Uh, I'm not quite financially independent yet. Um, but yeah, I made pretty good money. I got to six figures before 30. That yeah. was kind of my goal. That's fantastic. Len, how about you? Early days with money? So this is high school? Yeah. High school, college yeah. age. Yeah. I, I, well, early in high school... Actually, in high school, I was, I'd say, a little more than frugal. I was more in the selective, selective spending phase. You know, I had a, I had a job back, here comes the old man stories, but I had a job uh, at a high school working at a grocery store, and I became a journeyman checker. And back then, and this is in the early 80s, I was making, what, uh, $13 an hour back then, $13 an hour. Okay, so I'm a teenager making $13 an hour, you know, and we'd get triple time. This is back when, you know, you could actually support a family on that kind of thing. So I was making some darn good money as a high schooler. Um, so I would spend on what I needed, but I never overspent. But I will say I was in the, can I use the F word? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I, I was we'll in, the, in the, I was in the, okay, I was in the realm in terms of retirement. Despite making that money, and my dad was begging me to put money away for retirement at that age. And when I was in high school, I was like, you know, I got plenty of time and I didn't put any of it away, which I, I greatly regret, greatly regret not doing that. So oh, gee, I was how, kind of, I was, oh, I'm sorry. So I was smart with my spending, but, but not with my retirement. Oh, gee, how about you? In our family, it was very much, we had food and shelter. And if you wanted anything else, you had to figure that out on your own. Yeah. I mean, the clothing, obviously. My dad worked hard. My mom stayed at home and I started working when I was 11 and all of that money that I had from when I was 11 and on uh, was always mine to spend however I wanted. I saved some to buy a car. You know, I was the one who figured that out. I didn't get any financial guidance from my parents on that. I figured out, okay, this is how much a car is going to cost when I turn 16. I've got five years and, you know, and here's how much I need to have put away. Uh, I remember going into the bank and we were standing in line to deposit this money, you know, that I had from my paper route job, uh, cause I had just accumulated it in cash. And, and there was a, a sign that said something about Franklin Templeton funds. And I'm like, Oh, I've heard of them. Yeah. I'm gonna have that, not the bank stuff. And so my mom was adamant that it was a terrible idea to invest your money. But, you know, but I started a mutual fund account when I was little, but because I always had so much money relative, not quite $13 an hour money like Len, apparently. <laughs> but, you know, two or 300 bucks when you're like 11 is a crap load of cash every every month. And it came in like clockwork. I worked all the way through high school and into college. So I did not save a penny beyond like what the things are that I thought that I needed, like a car and a little bit of money for college. And so I very much had the effort attitude of spending, though, early on not on saving and investing. Yeah, that was, uh, I'm going to say that that was me too. I'm, I'm very much like you and Diana where it, it wasn't that retirement was important. It was that it, it never crossed my mind. 
never crossed yeah. my mind. And and if I had a dollar, I so rarely had money that I would blow it as fast as possible. Like just I, as fast as I could. I feel like I always had money, but that always meant that I could do anything that I wanted. You know, like if I wanted a new pair of jeans, I was just like, I'll just go to the store and get a new pair of jeans. And if I didn't have enough for a new pair of jeans, I would wait a week or two and then I would have enough. So it was, it was very much like if I could think it up, I could probably do it. This blogger, Purple Life, went from being very frugal to what she calls selective extravagance, where she said, you know what? I'm doing pretty well. I can spend some money on some big things. Kind of, Len, in some ways, sounds like where you were, right? Where you're making good yes. money and you're saving most of it, but selective extravagance. Diana, for you, when did you see that money feeling pivot away from, you know what? I'm going to make billions later, so... I can go ahead and spend money today. Yeah. Well, I found myself at 28 years old, 30 grand in debt for no reason, just from my mindless spending. So I, I like to describe my epiphany as this like refreshing punch in the face when I found the Mr. Money Mustache blog. And I realized that I was being just super wasteful with the money that I did have. Was that and you, I just, really, you just stumbled on Mr. Money Mustache? Yes. Yeah, someone sent me an article. It was probably that one... Um, your debt is an emergency. That just had a really big effect on me. And I ended up reading that entire blog and it was like a complete 180. I really started to see money as, you know, you can either buy stuff or you could buy time and options. And I really wanted time and options. So I ended up getting out of that 30 grand of debt in 11 months. And from there, I started saving about 60% of my income. And it was awesome. It like completely changed my life. Wow. Just so just overnight you changed. Yeah. And became super frugal. Yeah. There was no middle ground. It was just, no. I'm blowing my cash. It was cash like complete 180. Wow. Yeah. Len, you? Well, so in college, I went back to frugal. And then just because I wasn't, I didn't have any money. So I was actually, you know, I was living off what I had saved for college. But then I went to work, got my job. You know, that's when I started thinking about retirement a little bit. So, um, uh, I guess it was a, it was an evolution. It was kind of a, you know, I, cause, cause I graduated a little bit late from college and I was 26 and I had nothing saved for retirement. And I started looking at the math and I was like, wow, I gotta, I need a lot of time to say, you know, cause I didn't do this frugal thing that everybody's doing. Now. It's like, you can get super frugal and save 60% of your income. That never dawned on me. I don't think I could have done it to be honest with you. I don't think I have that kind of discipline really to live that frugally and, and save that massive amount of money really fast. So you've so never I, been, you've never been incredibly frugal. No, I've never been. No, I've always been probably in the, the only time I guess I was, was in college. But other than that, I've always been, I'd say in this, call it that selective, selective spending. You know, I, I would save for something. I would set a goal, save for it. And then I would buy it, the splurge stuff. Why start so, saving yeah. for retirement then? Did you feel like it was just the responsible thing to do or you felt like you were behind or why, why then? Um, but well, I was just thinking, you know, I was like, well, you know, I'm going to have, you know, probably a family and, and, and I don't want to work my whole life because, and you know, I want to have, I want to enjoy retirement. And I did the, I was running the numbers, Joe. And, and I was like, you? you know, gosh, I, yeah. <laughs> so I was running, I was like, well, it's going to take a long time, you know, because I wasn't willing to save 60% of my income. Cause I was saying, Hey, 10%, 15%. 
I didn't even get to 15% of my income saving until I was probably 30, 31. And so, uh, you know, I just said, God, it's going to take me a long time. I better get started. And then I was thinking I should have listened to my dad and started putting this money away back when I was 16, 17, 18. You know, that's why I was really, what a dummy I was, you know. Isn't that funny? I think about that all the time, all the advice that I just gave up, like, whatever. Yep. You don't know yep. me. I just blew my dad off. I was like, you know, you're crazy. I got plenty of time, dad. You know, he was right. Yeah. OG. What's the category for drunken sailor on leave? Like that's, that's, that's my spending pattern for everything. In the twenties? Everything. Oh, no, always. Len's laughing, but you know, Jono, I mean, it's true. I got married in 2002, right after my wife graduated college. I'd been working out of college at that time. And in the first year I made $10,000, the next year I made 30 and then, and then I, and then after that I got married and I was like, Oh my God, her job is 40. And I was, man, I'm making 30. Like this is crazy money. And if I could make 50 and then she could make 50, that's like a hundred. We'll never run out of money. Like we will just, there will always be money. And uh, of course, being an entrepreneur, you have good years and not so good years. And two years later, I made 600 bucks for the entire year. That was also the time where it was a really great idea to buy a big fancy house because God's not making any more land. All, everybody who's under the age of probably 35 right now does not remember any of this housing stuff. But, but that was kind of the, I mean, it's kind of going on right now. You know, that was the story, right? You got to get the new Pulte build because they're not making any more land. So just go get it now. Buy your second house first. That was all. That was also my favorite line. Buy your second house first. I'm like, yeah. I remember getting the mortgage. The guy called and goes, you guys make about 12000 a month, right? And I'm like, uh, no, like seven. He's like, so 12? I'm like, no. Seven? He's like, oh, let me try again. So 12? <laughs> uh, yeah. He goes, okay, great. Congratulations, you're approved. We bought a four-bedroom colonial, 3,000 square feet, you know, for two of us. Made a lot of sense. And right after we closed on our house, you can't put a Pontiac in that garage. You got to put a BMW in the garage. So we bought a BMW. So we had, for the first time ever in our life, a mortgage payment and an $800 car payment. Like literally this within the same week of time. But hey, so I've known you for a long time. You've always been a good saver. You know how to invest money. When did the change happen? Because on one hand, you're right. You can spend money with the best of them. I've been around you when you spend some serious money on stuff. But on the other hand, there was a saving gene that happened then too. When did that hit? I don't know that there was a specific time. I think the biggest thing was having it be out of sight, out of mind, because there's too many times. And we hear this like with giving. This is also this is a favorite conversation around giving. Like, I can't give 5% of my income away right now. Like I only make 100 grand, like cash flow is tight. I need that. It's like, cool. I'll give away 5% of my income when I make 500 grand. It's like, no, you won't. No, you won't. It's $25,000. If you're not giving away five grand, you're not going to give away 25. And it's the same thing with saving you know, and investing and being responsible with your money, especially on the investing side of things, is if you can figure out a way to trick yourself. I mean, it took me forever to figure this out with taxes. You know, like I'm not good with going, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll pay the government later. I'm good for it. Like, no, I'm not. I'm terrible with that plan. I need to, when I get my check, I need to make sure that they get paid first. You know, people say pay yourself first. No, pay Uncle Sam first because Uncle Sam would take all your stuff. You know, so we do that. It's the same thing with investing. If you can take your paycheck and say, well, I'm going to put 5% in my 401k or I'm going to put 10% in or out of sight, out of mind. So that helped us a ton. It also was flexible 
or being flexible, I think, because my job income, you know, was all over the board. My wife had a regular corporate job, which was good. So that kind of covered our, our lifestyle, generally speaking. And so she was doing the 401k savings. She had the health insurance. She had the HSA, you know, that helped us kind of stay on the straight narrow a little bit, but not being, it's funny that you think that I'm a great saver because I'm not, but I just don't violate my own system. Well, no, that's, oh, but that's definitely me too. We share that. I am not naturally a great saver. I keep no money in my wallet because I will still blow it. But I learned that a long time ago that the way that I save money is I never see it. If I never see it, it is great. But I did have a period in my life where for a year I made no money and I owed a bunch of people money. And oh yeah. And the creditors came calling and I had this, you know, she went back into this blog post. She went back into tightwad mode and I totally went into tightwad mode. I didn't not spend money because I didn't want to not, I didn't want to spend money. I wanted to spend money. I had no money. I had no money. I had no credit. I had two kids. I had absolutely nothing that we could do. My wife was still in college. So yeah, we were, we were screwed for a year hiding from creditors and trying to figure life out. And man, that actually, for me, that was the period that changed everything. And then I went from there, kind of upper ladder, then back into frugal mode as I could trust myself to get a little money and then into selective and then into, into chill mode. I don't think I've made it back to yet. I don't think I've made it there. I've always felt like there's always something else to do. You know what I mean? Like there's always a way to make more money. You know, we talk about this on the show quite a bit, you know, like the how to save a few bucks, how to do this. But we don't spend a lot of time on making more money. You know, work on the side of the equation that is the income side, because you can only cut your expenses to zero, right? I mean, you can only have the lowest food budget or whatever, but you can always work on making more money. So I've always had more than one source of income. And I think that's helped out a lot too with the attitude of like, well, if this thing's not working... It will eventually. So at least I've got this over here. Yeah, I Um, adopted this attitude that when I was broke, that if I helped other people, and I didn't invent this phrase, but if I helped other people get what they want, I would get what I want. And I've always had this feeling because I feel very lucky that I have people around me now that if I ever needed anything, that people would take care of me. And the more that I've had that attitude, the more that I feel like there's been this wealth. And to your point, not feeling like I had to worry about it. Diana, how about you? You've been nodding your head. What's, uh, what are you thinking? I think when it comes to reducing expenses, most people think of the deprivation and kind of when they hear tightwad, you know, they think, oh, that sounds miserable. I think in my experience, frugality has been this constant experimenting with what where am I getting the most value from spending my money? And so I've taken it really far. Like when I was getting out of debt, I really treated it like my hair was on fire. I didn't buy any clothing. I cooked every single meal I ate. I stopped going out so much. Most of my mindless spending was like me going out and drinking with my friends in New York City. So instead, I would host these elaborate dinner parties and like everyone would come to me and bring the booze and then I would cook the food. I was still getting that need met, but I was doing it in a more resourceful way. So I think if you can pair creativity and resourcefulness with frugality, then it's actually a really good opportunity to learn about yourself. Whereas if you're just slashing expenses and you have that like feeling of lack and scarcity, that's when I think it can be pretty painful. She talks about how the person in the past that she used to be would never have, quote, thrown money at the problem. 
she would have never paid for stuff if she could make it or she could find a way to get around paying for it. To your point, being a little more creative than spending money. Now she says she has enough money that she will just throw money at it. Do you, yeah. do you now throw I, money at it? Yeah. I feel like I got to that place because once you get to a place where you're out of debt, you're fully funding your retirement vehicles. You have a really healthy emergency fund. I mean, once you get to that level of financial security, the only thing left to do is you're just increasing your speed to getting to financial independence. If you're continuing to ask yourself the question, how do I reduce my expenses so I can save and invest more? I feel like I used my financial stability to start asking bigger questions. What do I want to do with my time? What kind of people do I want to surround myself with? What do I want to create in the world? And I started throwing money at those things. And it's money well spent because, you know, I just don't think there's all that much value for me in increasing my speed to get to financial independence because what's going to change about my life when I reach it? I want to create a life now that makes it almost irrelevant if I ever reach FI. That's kind yeah. of where I'm at right now in my financial journey. Yeah, that's interesting. I love talking about spending money is investing. Len? Okay, I got to bring this up. She's in the effort mode right now. She's 30 years old and she's got $650,000 for retirement. And I, I think we're throwing the word retirement around loosely because I, frankly, when I read this and I'm looking at this, I'm like, if you've got 60 years of life left and you've got $650,000 in the bank, I just don't see if you're, you're not going to retire. I'm sorry. You're not going to retire <laughs> with that much money in the bank and 60 years of life left in you. So, uh, you know, that's one thing I'm going to, I had to bring up here because it's just, and on top of that, She's going effort. She's spending effort now with her funds. And I frankly, I think it's I think it's reckless. So I, I had to get that out because it just I looked at the numbers. I mean, my God, I, I just don't know how the math works. I, well, I don't see it. If you're if you're super duper frugal, though, like she is, you don't need a ton of money to get there. Well, 60 years, though. But but let's uh, again. And, and this gets overlooked a lot in personal finance and, and by especially by a lot of people in the fire community. It's called net present value. That money, $600,000 today is not $600,000 60 years from now. What is that $600,000? Even if you maintain that, what is that $600,000 going to be worth 50 years from now? If you're truly retired, I suspect a purple life is going to be having side hustles and, and supplementing that income because I just – if you don't take that into account, you don't take taxes into account. You don't take depreciation of the dollar and purchasing power into account. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. And it's not just looking at the number today where you're at. You have to incorporate how long you plan to live. And man, I mean, yeah. God bless her. But I, I don't know how you, I don't. My goodness, I can't imagine retiring even today with that. I think that would be crazy. I think that fire number is only as good as your ability to estimate your yearly expenses for the rest of your life. And nobody can do that. So I think she took a really good guess at her yearly expenses based on what she's spending now, but she doesn't know what her spending is going to be in yeah. 30 years. Well, you know, and there is, it's the effort part though, Diana. The, the, yeah, I mean, she said, I'm little... frugal. I'd say, okay, but she's in the effort mode right now. Yeah. So that's what really gets me. 
And she didn't address this in the article, but what is her 4% withdrawal rate? You know, like, is she still, even though she's saying F it, is she still within the range of what she planned to draw down each year? Who knows? She doesn't really address that in the article. But I agree with you that, you know, if you're on a fixed income, you can't really say F it. You have to follow the plan. So it's unclear if she's still within that plan or not. But I, what I got out of the article is that, you know, her relationship with money has changed over time. And I think that we all notice that, right? But is Once that going to make, make it harder for her to keep the pace that she was on? I mean, again, it depends. Is she still within her safe withdrawal number or is she throwing caution to the wind? Who knows? It's not clear from that article. I think that part of this, Len, is also the different kind of trajectory that is the 30 and out type of concept versus I'm going to work for a little while. I'm going to amass some assets and then go do other stuff that provides me income, but use my portfolio as a supplement to that. I'm with you. Having seen thousands of people retire over 22 years of doing this work, I mean, unless they have some other sorts of income like social security or pension income or something like that, you know, retire, like straight up retirement, the actual definition, like how we think about it, you know, with five or 600 grand in the bank is a pretty tenuous projection. But like most people who are in this space, I assume that she, like many others, are also getting speaking fees and also advertising on blog posts and, you know, writing books exactly. and generating whatever. Exactly. And that's what I say, OG. I, I just, I don't want people out there reading this. I'm afraid people out there are reading this and are saying retire. They're taking that word literally. Yeah. Cool. I got 500 grand. I can, I can yeah. have a few money at 500 grand. Right. Yeah. Right. There's another question I have too, which is she's saying F- it with money because she's gone from 500,000 when she retired up to six, I mean, up to 650,000. So if she strategized at all, she doesn't feel that. So to some degree, it kind of feels like she's playing with the house's money, right? To use a gambling analogy, like, Hey, I got 150,000 bucks. She's talking about a $3,000 condo that they rented in uh, Portland when they went and said, didn't blink an eye, just spent the 3000 bucks to stay in this, in this beautiful condominium on the top floor. Does that feeling again, change my, when the stock market comes down? Absolutely. A hundred percent does. And there's, you know, uh, notwithstanding last year's little blip. And I know that a lot of people got freaked out. I just saw an article the other day that said that despite the all time market records and all that sort of stuff, still 70% of all new money is going into fixed income, which is just mind boggling to me, but that's topic for a different day. So other than just that little blip that happened last March and April, and most people were kind of sort of even money by like, Midsummer, if you just didn't pay attention to anything, the vast majority of people haven't experienced an extended bear market with any considerable amounts of money. And my pushback always, people say, well, you know, I, I stayed the course in 2008 when it happened. I go, yeah, you had 80 grand. What else were you going to do? You didn't have $800,000. You didn't have 1.7 million and watch half of it get evaporated in, in the span of six weeks. And then PS stay that way for the next five months and then take another two years to get back to even like that takes all sorts of level of intestinal fortitude. I was trying to find the like the, 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 the PC version <laughs> of saying that, but, you know, but or like 2000 through 2003, you know, uh, it, anybody 
who didn't actually have a boatload of money invested during that time period. We all, we all don't know how we're going to react to it. And you can say, Hey, I had this great experience or I did the right thing in March of last year. And you know, I feel great about it. It's like, cool. But now let's take that and also have that be for the next three years. And then let me know how you're like, Oh yeah, I'm still hundred percent invested in my portfolio. Didn't make any changes, you know, and I kept my, my withdrawal rate the same. And you know what I mean? Like all of those things, that kind of napkin math that people rely on assume all these variables that in real life just doesn't happen, you know, from a behavior finance standpoint. But, but one more question, then we'll wrap this up, which is, I agree with you, Len, that she's a public figure. And a lot of people take that retirement word seriously. And Diana, you're interfacing with lots of people in the fire movement all the time. There's always this RE argument, right? Are you really retired? Yeah. Which is so stupid. It just, it's this dumb argument. But on the other hand, to some degree, does it matter if she stays retired or not? Or if she has this great experience in her life for 10 years from 30 to 40, and then she goes back to work. Does it matter? She took 10 years when she's young, she's healthy, she can travel and she had some fun. I mean, why that, that I, I don't know if there's anything wrong with that. Is there? No. And I mean, I'm not sure that I don't, I'm, I haven't read her whole blog, so I'm not sure her position on this. Does she say I will never go back to work? Because I think when you go on this path of retiring early, you know, things change, right? Like I think of um, Travis Hornsby, who spoke at the economy conference last year. He said he retired or reached financial independence at like 25 because his expenses were 20 grand a year. And then he met his wife and wanted to have a kid. So he went back to work, right? Because that, I don't think that life is linear. I think it's very non-linear. And so maybe she's taking a mini retirement. If she has to go back to work, then that's, that's what she has to do. But I think Currently, she has the bandwidth to not have to work and say fuck it. Apparently, let, let me let me just uh, let me give one thing that I'm thinking. And I'm just taking this from my perspective. This is my perspective. So if I was, and I'm going to take this again from a professional. I'm a professional. I'm an engineer, but this could be any other professional as well. Let's say you make a you, you're a professional. You're making a really good salary. You're saving your money. Uh, 60%, 70% of it, and you retire at 30. And then you go off for 10 years, have a great time. And then you find that you don't have enough money to make it. You have to go back to work. Well, what you have done in, in those 10 years, one, you've lost out on any raises that you might have got over those 10 years in terms of earning power. And just from an engineering perspective, if you're an engineer, for example, you've probably made yourself a lot less marketable and make it a lot harder for you to get a job as an engineer because you've been out of business for 10 years and a lot of things have happened since then. And so somebody's going to be more willing to hire somebody who's been in school or or has been working and keeping up on the technologies or what have you. So there is the risk that you make yourself unmarketable 10 years down the road, at least from what you were doing uh, in that high paying job when you retired at age 30. So yeah, that's but my isn't point. that what every mother deals with when she leaves the workforce to raise her kids? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, it certainly is a risk, but I think I'd rather risk that than lock myself into a career until I'm 65 and then go off to do the things that I want to well, do. That's, that's, that's you know? your choice. I mean, that's the risk. That's a risk, right? So that's a risk you want to take. And it's, that's up to you. And it, it, I think, um, there are plenty of women who will sit out in engineering. I know who, for example, who come back to work. They don't wait till their kids, you know, they, they don't become stay at home moms and then come back. That just doesn't happen. Those kind of jobs, you have to come back within a year or two or it's going to be very difficult for you. So, like I said, that's my perspective. 
you know, everybody's different and it's a risk. You have to weigh the risks. So, well, and then you got to come back with a new perspective, right? I mean, to get to what Purple Life is saying, be ready for change over time that your whole perspective is going to change. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Well, our next guest is a gentleman that you've heard a ton before. Normally, if you're new to the show, this is where we have our Friday FinTech segment. That's the segment where we talk about new cool stuff on your phone or on your computer that can help you get better with money. But who cares about being better with money if your body's not keeping up? So if you need better physical fitness or maybe a better diet, hang on because our friend Angelo Poli helps us. He's with MetPro, the man behind MetPro. He's helped so many of the world's CEOs and celebrities that you know get uh, physically fit. He worked with uh, notably Aaron Rodgers from the Green Bay Packers is uh, one guest that I know offhand or one one of his uh, people he's helped that I know of offhand. So without further ado, let's pepper him with questions. Angelo Poli. Hey, I'm back with us again, Mr. Angelo Poli. How are you, man? I'm doing great. Love being back in the basement, Joe. It's so fun <laughs> having you every time. And we've got some great questions from our listeners. So let's just dive in, dude. Uh, let's do it. We got a lot of questions about metabolism, which you may know a thing or two about. I mean, it's in the name, right? I'd be surprised if Some, something, something about that. Yeah. It's somewhere in there. Lots of questions about <laughs> metabolism though. And about uh, two different things. Number one, the changing of metabolism over time, right? In your thirties and your forties and your fifties and how to adjust based on a changing metabolism. And then number two, a question about resetting your metabolism. Talk to those things about changing metabolism and hitting the reset button. So people ask me this all the time. Uh, does my metabolism change? And I joke with them and say, no, it doesn't change when you get older. And that's not really true. But here's what I then tell people. I say, I want you to act like it's true because you can't control the aging process. You're going to age. Will you have the same metabolisms in, metabolism in your 50s that you did in your 20s? Well, no, if all things were equal. Now, if you're active and healthy and fit and participating in lots of physical activity and eating clean and doing all the right stuff in your 50s and in your 20s, you were just sitting on the couch and, you know, eating cheeseburgers day in and day out, you could have a faster metabolism in your 50s. All things being equal, yes, the aging process takes a toll. But it's not a death sentence. I have lots of people getting in phenomenal shape in their 40s, 50s, 
60s, even 70s. I got some people who are just phenomenal. I had, I had a person do their first marathon in their 70s. Wow, that's so cool. So it's incredible what you can do. And you, you can absolutely adjust your metabolic rating and your setting by conditioning your body to do what you want the metabolism to do versus what most people end up doing is not really recognizing the role of the metabolism. And so we kind of bend to its will. So it's, oh, my metabolism's slowing down. I'm going to eat less and be less active. Whereas if you have a strategy, there is a way to guide your metabolism up because the overarching principle, and we talked a little bit about this last time, is your metabolism will acclimate to what you get used to. That's both your training and your nutrition. So having a step one, then step two, then step three, that's the winning combo. Where people end up getting scared is they heard step three is good, so they skip steps one and two, and then they gain weight in the process, or vice versa. So having a cohesive step-by-step strategy of gradually and incrementally changing your nutrition, changing your training, that's the ticket. What's important to track, Angelo, while you're tracking your metabolism? What are the measurements we want to know? You want to track, of course, your energy and performance and how you're feeling. You know, that falls under the wellness umbrella, but getting more specific to either weight loss or metabolism, you are going to want to track what your body weight is doing and you're going to want to track what you're taking in. A lot of people are like, well, I don't want to have a PhD in, you know, in label reading every time I go to the grocery store. But if you can get a basic gauge for what's my overall caloric intake like? Average. You can't just take one day. You got to take a few days. You know, there's a million and one different plug-in apps and things where you can just see how many calories you ate in a day. Of course, you can get all that sort of stuff with with some of the MetPro tools, but even if you just want one of the free download, plug your calories in, it can give you a printout of, okay, here's how many calories you ate, here was the macronutrient breakdown. And so the second thing you want to look at is what's your overall macro breakdown? What type of intake do you have as far as your carbohydrates? And generally speaking, your calories and your carbohydrates are going to be two of the biggest and most frequently used levers. And then the third thing is going to be, of course, your exercise. So how much am I exercising? How regular am I? And what's my next step to build habit? I love theory, but at the end of the day, what helps people transform is practical. I want to know, okay, what did we actually accomplish this week? How consistent were you with either your intake or with your exercise? A lot of people, they go all in and they go down to the gym for a day and it's like, I haven't exercised in a while, so I got to get this giant boot camp workout in. I'm much more interested in what I can get you to do in 10, 15 minutes that you'll do tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. Because if it's not sustainable, it didn't happen. Well, and before you get to the example, let me share just my personal story there. As Jesse and I, my MetPro coach, as we cleaned up my diet, we began noticing by tracking this stuff 
that on days that I supplemented that with shocker movement, right. And actually working right. out, we saw much more than days because I work from home. My, my bed is maybe 15 steps that way. The kitchen is maybe yeah. 40 steps. And man, if I don't move, we see a movement, some movement, but man, we see big movement. Even if I just, even if it's not a heavy workout day, if I go for a walk a couple times a day, like just the difference yeah. by tracking is, can be big. And first of all, when somebody calls me up, they say, hey, look, Angelo, I, I need to you know, be at this weight at this date for this event, or I need to wear this outfit on this day at this time. And that's great. We do that. Call us up. But I, broader strokes, I want to tell a story. I had a family that brought to me, a husband and wife, they brought to me their 13-year-old daughter who they felt needed to get healthy, but wanted her to over the summer lose a few pounds and wanted help with that. And they asked me if I would put her on a diet to lose 20 pounds over the summer. What I said is, no, I won't. But here's what I will do. I'll help your daughter find foods that are healthy that she likes, and I'll help her establish some activities that inspire her that she enjoys, and we'll lose about five pounds over the summer. And they said, well, isn't 20 better? I said, no. And here's why. Because if she loses 20 pounds on a strict regimen doing things she hates, by next summer, it never happened. Might as well have never started. It just never happened. Whereas if we can instill a value system around activity, around healthy eating, then even though she may only lose a few pounds this summer, guess what? She'll lose a few more next summer and the summer after that and the summer after that. So that's coming back to that practical element. So whenever I'm coaching someone, of course, you know, with an adult who has a very specific timeline, that's a little different. Sure. But big picture, I still want to figure out what can we install into your routine that's repeatable day in and day out. Find the lowest common denominator and then build on it. That's where the magic is. Speaking of magic, people think of that uh, different diets are magic. You hear about this magic diet all the time. Intermittent fasting is the hot thing right now. And we had two questions about intermittent fasting. One was feelings regarding fasting, further eating for eight hours fasting for 16 daily versus fasting for a whole 24 hours and doing it maybe less often. And Tracy asks, what are his thoughts on intermittent fasting and who does he think it's appropriate for? Great question, Tracy. So every different dieting modality has some science behind it. It's, it. There's a mechanic behind it, whether or not it's low carb, calorie manipulation, glycemic load, food time gating, which is, you know, intermittent fasting. Right. There's some strategy behind it. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. Most people don't really understand the mechanics that go into it. Let's take intermittent fasting in the most popular form, which seems like the you know, eight-hour eating window, 16-hour fasting window. It's good. Some people get some good results out of it, but not for the reasons that they might think. So they've read that, oh, well, 16 hours fasting causes you to lose all this weight or fires up your metabolism. And there's kernels of truth to that. So I'm not saying it's not founded in science, but if somebody loses weight eating in an eight-hour window, it's because they've changed what they're eating during that window. The average person will eat, you know, over the course of 10, 11 hours over the course of the day. 
So shrinking that down to eight hours is only going to be significant if the things that we're eating are lower calorie or more in line. And that happens more behaviorally. Intermittent fasting becomes more like gamification. And that's not necessarily a bad thing if it works, right? Yeah. So why is somebody going to lose weight with intermittent fasting? Well, because intermittent fasting has all the attributes of what is it called? The acronym um, SMART, specific, measurable, um, uh, achievable, realistic, and timely. So it's here, I eat in the, this window of time. So because I don't eat after 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., at 9.30, when I usually dive into the chocolate chip ice cream, <laughs> I don't do that. Therefore, someone will see progress. But if somebody were to eat the same meal plan and just shrink it from 11 hours down to eight, they'd have to look pretty closely to see, you know, nobody's losing 25 pounds doing that. Uh, not that it might not have some impact, sure. but at the end of the day, it's more the behavioral change that is triggering the weight loss. Now, as far as a 24-hour fast, that's a bit more aggressive. So that will check the box on the principle of contrast. But I would say that's a fairly advanced technique. And it really depends whether or not somebody wants to dive into that. Now, there may be some health benefits. There may be some digestive benefits. And it can be okay for some people to do. I would ask the question, do you already have a decent amount of structure and discipline in your overall routine? Do you have consistency in your nutrition and your exercise? Um, if the answer is yes, then um, you could experiment, but a lot of people don't tolerate. They just lose a day of productivity or they get a low blood sugar headache. Some people will tolerate it a little better than others. It just depends. If you are already haphazard with eating routine and exercise, there's a decent chance that just dropping a bomb in the middle of your week of fasting for 24 hours straight could actually be more disruptive, mm. shoot your productivity in the foot for that day, and then you're playing catch up the rest of the week so you don't have time to exercise or eat consistently. And so each person has to really determine if that's the right approach for them. I have seen some people do it with success, but I would say um, that's not nearly as common. You're going to see more of the 816 a lot more often. I wish you loved what you did. Just people. Don't I don't like it. this very much. I can't <laughs> wait to get off. Of you. This is just getting driving me crazy. <laughs> people don't get to see the enthusiasm with which you present this stuff. And it's always so great. You guys have a couple of great tools for people. The basis of MetPro is uh, concierge coaching, and yep. I use a MetPro coach. But you also have, for people that just want the technology, they can use the tool online to get the MetPro app. Talk yep. about both of those things for a moment, if you don't mind. Yeah, so we've been coaching company for years. I've been doing this for two decades. Basically, what we've done is we have have all of these analytics tools that we've developed Frankly, they were for our coaches to get them sharper and sharper and better at what they do, giving them all these tools to work with their clients. And they have just evolved over time to where somebody who wants to kind of take their own journey but utilize our tools on the way can do so. So wherever your starting point is, we have something to take care of you with. We'll, we'll, we, can, we can help you out, even if it's just a conversation and doing some strategy. So if you want to reach out, 
feel free. One of our consultants can visit with you and just get to know you a little, give you some tips and send you on your way. And at any point, if you want a little more horsepower, we got you covered there also. And it's a great conversation. No matter what, Stackers, the conversation that I had just leading into it was really good. I mean, questions about just your body type. Like, I didn't realize just different people just have different body types and figuring out that starting point was such a, I don't know, it was even that, that first discussion was really enlightening. So it's metpro.co. It's not.com. It's .co metpro.co forward slash SB for more. So we'll have a link to it in our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Angelo, great talking to you again, my friend. Have a fantastic summer and I'm sure we'll be circling back with you in the fall to see how we how we get ready for the second half of the year. Can't wait, Joe. Have a good one. Hey, stackers. It's me, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. You know, I almost threw in my opinion during the roundtable, but you know, then I realized I have my own segment. I don't need to fight for mic time with those hacks. So gather around, kids. You know, I used to stress about every little thing in life, you know, like my budget or whether there was enough Mrs. Butterworth's left in the jar for Saturday's waffles. And, you know, the most important thing, putting the mail on the left side of the desk, not the right. You know, I've matured a lot over these past few years. You know, like whenever the El Camino wouldn't start, I used to bang on the steering wheel and call her some not very flattering names. But, you know, those days... Well, those days are, they're in the past. You can tell because I only flip out a little on Todd from the Sizzler when he totally takes his time refilling my sweet tea. That Todd drives me crazy. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a new man. Older, wiser, and probably more handsome, if, if that's even possible. You know, one way I learned to lower my stress level is by going to the gym. Heck, you should see me on ankle day. Beast mode total beast mode. Speaking of ankles, one of the most well-known gym franchises is a place called Gold's Gym. So let's go with this question. What year did the first Gold's Gym open? I'll be back faster than you can take some deep, calming breaths. All right. For those of you new to the podcast, we have a year-long competition going on between our three contributors. And that is Len, OG, and Paula Pant. And today, Diana, you are Paula Pant in this competition. I got good news and bad news. I just wanted to apologize in advance to Paula. (laughs) Does everybody come on and say that? I think it's like a weekly thing. I just need to apologize. Uh, So do you want the good news first or the bad news? I'd like the good news. The good news is you get to guess last. That's the good okay. news. The Fantastic. bad the bad news is you guessed last because you have three points. OG has five points. And after probably the most controversial <laughs> game of this we've ever had, Len is back in the lead with six. But Len, good times might be over. You've got to go first, my friend. When did the first Gold's Gym? They print money at Gold's Gym. That place is just uh, make money hand over fist. You know what? I started at 18 at Gold's Gym. The owner, sorry, Gold's Gym, he stiffed us after about two months that I was there. I showed up one day and the place was locked up. And, and, really? And, yeah. Yeah, it really sucked. So that was the end of Gold's Gym for me. So, hey, uh, Gold's Ended Gym. Up going, if, end up going, Gold's Gym, <laughs> if you want to sponsor the show, we didn't say that. Len did. We, <laughs> we, we love you. you. We know you wouldn't yeah, stiff I think anybody. It was, 
after that, it was I forget who it was after that I went to. But uh, anyways, so let's see. So we know at least I'm an old guy and that was I was 18. Uh, so let's see. That's a long time ago. And I think it'd been around a while before then. Sometimes, you know, I kind of think that this started around the time of Arnold Schwarzenegger if I, and when he was like Mr. World. Uh, so I would guess. And when was that? That was probably 10 years before I was a I'm going to guess I'm going to say 1972. 1972. OG. Uh, the first year the first Gold's Gym opened. The year the first Gold's Gym opened. Golly, that's a pretty good guess, Len. Uh, 19 and 65. 1965. And Diana? Well, after listening to Len, I don't have any like smart rationale <laughs> for, uh, for the number or the year I'm going to say. Uh, it honestly just popped into my head. And I feel like Gold's Gym is an American treasure that's been here for a long time. So I'm going to say 1950. 1950. She's going in the Wayback Machine. We would love to tell you which one of you three is right, but we don't do that. We'll be right back. Well, if you're new to Stacky Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things. So I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together we can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because... Well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words... Your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. All right, Diana, we'll start with you. 1950, if it's first half of the century, you got it. 
All right. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> OG, 1965, feeling good? Uh, as good as I can feel. Don't know. Shot in the dark. <laughs> Len, 72. They seem to think that, uh, well, at least OG thinks you you might have nailed it. Like you did I last think, week. What if you put yeah, the I arrow did. right there? I'm feeling pretty good, actually. I think I'm going to win this. Oh, well, let's don't get too cocky, Doug. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> you got it here, man. What's our answer? Hey, trivia nerds, it's your pal, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Just talking about my past and how I used to get stressed out so easily has made it abundantly clear how much I've grown as a person. For example, uh, there I am sitting at the card table and Joe didn't use a coaster and there's totally a big ring underneath his coffee cup. In the past, old Doug would have just killed him right on the spot, just finished him. But not the new Doug, Uh uh-uh, I can just sit here and perform your trivia without even noticing that spot that we're going to need to clean up later before it's a permanent mark, like the time OG dropped salsa on it. No, 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 that's uh, that's something the old Doug would have obsessed over. Uh, but not new and improved Doug. But, but seriously, how hard is it to use a coaster? And don't get me wrong, I'm not stressed about this, but really, is it that hard? I don't think so. It seems pretty easy to me. Okay, you know what? I'm just going to politely, very politely, remind Joe that he didn't use a coaster. Again. For like the 10 millionth time. But before I do, let's get back to today's trivia. Not that I need to, but lots of people go to the gym to blow off some steam. So what year did the first Gold's Gym open up? Joe Gold opened the first Gold's Gym way back in August 1965 in Venice Beach, California, long before the modern-day health club existed. Featuring homemade equipment and dubbed the Mecca of Bodybuilding, it was frequented by celebrities like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Dave Draper. Now it's time for me to very calmly remind Joe to always use a coaster, Joe. Just use it. Nailed Good job, it. OG. Good job. Hey, you notice this answer was exactly 100 years after the last week's answer? Uh, that I also got right. It was actually, <laughs> no, it was actually seven days after last week's answer. Oh, well, but, but we're going to the year. We're going oh. to the year. That's right. Hey, do I get half credit? I said Arnold Schwarzenegger. You I got Arnold Schwarzenegger right. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Nice job. In 1965, OG, bam, that's the magic of looking it up on your phone while Len's talking. <laughs> Trust me, I am not losing to that dude this year. So whatever needs to happen, happens. That really did cross my mind. My phone's sitting here and I was like, I could solve this. I could win this for Paula. But <laughs> no. Maybe do that. I, Is there like a, a, I don't know, like a special ring of hell for cheating at trivia that has no <laughs> prize? <laughs> I always, when somebody gets mad at board game night, I'm like, really, we're going to remember this in like 12 minutes after you win the game or lose the game. Who cares? Hey, and by the way, Joe, I need my trophy quick before uh, Stacy comes back on your show. <laughs> you totally do. <laughs> You gotta, you gotta get it. Like I gotta right. do something to compete with his Emmys. Get it, get it like right now. Hey, let's take out the magnifying glass guys and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to us courtesy of magnifymoney.com. Diane. And when you go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money, you know what happens? Tell me. 
those, those, <laughs> those financial products you use every day, Diana, nowhere near the best in class that they're at your brick and mortar bank. Over 92% of the savings accounts, checking accounts, the bank products you use every day, available online, all ranked at magnifymoney.com. Go to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnifymoney so that they know that we sent you. And today we've uh, got somebody that's uh, anonymous. Paula usually does the honors and gives our anonymous person a name. So Diana, who would you like to uh, name our anonymous caller? Um, Let's call him Sal. Sal. Is there a reason we're going to call him Sal? Just the first name that popped in my head. <laughs> All right. Let's, wow. let's, let's say hi. Let's say hi to Sal. Hey, Joe and OG. I have a HSA question for you. I've been maxing out my family's HSA for the last several years to save more for retirement beyond IRAs and 401ks. Even though we've had some reoccurring health issues over the years, which resulted in a lot of transactions to save, we've been fortunate enough to be able to pay for most of them out of pocket, saving them for future reimbursement and investing the balance now. Early on, my old HSA provider told me that simply saving the EOB on these transactions was sufficient for reimbursement, and years later, I realized I should have been saving the receipts. After painfully going through all of my transactions and ensuring that I have both the EOB and either receipt or credit card statement to prove it was paid for with out-of-pocket funds, I'm thinking more about this. What are my other blind spots and what else do people save? We often hear about the benefits of HSAs, but less about what went wrong when people went to reimburse themselves or got audited. It was painful enough looking back two to three years for receipts. I definitely don't want to be looking back decades. Any guidance would be much appreciated. Thanks so much for the show and everything that you do. Hey, thanks for the question, Sal. And that's a good question. In fact, uh, we had one cast, uh, Belinda, Belinda Rosenblum, who said, you know what? Most of the people she coaches have so much trouble just keeping receipts for four days that to just use the HSA for the health benefit now, like don't use yeah. that long-term, not that the long-term strategy is fantastic, but she believes in, in handling it now. So uh, Diana thoughts to help out Sal. Yeah, that's kind of the way that I approach it. I have been maxing out my, or fully funding my HSA for the past four years. I kind of look at it as that really helps me not worry about healthcare costs in my budget. I am a very low utilizer of healthcare. So my costs are already very low, but because I just pay for what comes up out of my HSA, I just don't have to worry about it in any other place in my budget. And I just think that if you do have a lot of costs where you're like, man, I'm going to want to save these receipts and tap into it later, maybe your medical needs are too much to, you know, maybe you should switch medical plans and not worry about the HSA if, if you're really spending that much that you're going to worry about it later. Here's the other thing. HSAs have been around since like 2003. So we don't have any examples of anyone tapping into it decades and decades later. And I was looking at the rules of them earlier today and like what you can spend the money on and what, you know, you can't. They're changing the rules all the time. So what's to say that, you know, you spend on something today, you save your receipt and then they change the rules in 20 years and then you can't tap into it. That's kind of one of the, the things that I'd be worried about. And also, it's just one of those optimization strategies that seems like a real pain in the ass to me. To me, it's yeah, just that's, like... But that's potentially a ton of money that you're giving up by not having that money there long term. 
Yeah. But again, my spending on healthcare is I'm a very low utilizer of healthcare right now. So I just kind of look at it as a benefit of not being able, you know, not having to budget for healthcare costs. Uh, Len, any thoughts? No, I don't, I don't have anything more to add on that. The only thing I can say is here's one thing you do got to watch out for when it comes to EOBs. I had a dentist, I, I changed dentists a couple years ago. And he didn't like it too much when I had changed. And it turns out that he was withholding bills. I thought that we were having our bills covered for years. And he sent us like two or three years of back bills after I left. After he goes, you sure you're not coming back? I said, no. And then he fed me a whole bunch of bills that I thought I assumed were paid for. And he hadn't even you know, sent it to me yet. So we hadn't paid for it. So I would just say, always make sure that you're up to date, that for any services you get done, you make sure your doctor is sending you those bills and not holding anything back. Well, and actually just want to jump in right here because I think Lynn makes a really good point about medical billing. One thing that I think is more important than where are you going to spend from your HSA? Are you going to cover the expenses and save your receipts? Are how do you reduce those bills? Medical billing fraud is an $80 billion problem. We have a speaker at the economy conference. Her name's Angel Salucci, and she helps people analyze their, their medical bills for fraud. And you wouldn't believe some of the, the stuff that she uncovers. You're saying so, hospitals and doctors are defrauding patients. Yeah, and a lot of it is not intentional. It's that they have to enter in codes yeah. for what you had done. And those codes go to the insurance company. And so a lot of times they'll put the wrong code in. But because we get a bill and we just see a bundled code or just a number, we don't analyze those bills the way that we analyze any other bill or costs that we have. We just take their word for it. It's a huge problem that someone like Angel can kind of teach you how do you analyze those bills and make sure that you're being charged what you should be charged. OG? I remember when my son broke his arm, we went to the orthopedic doctor for a cast and you know, they have the little entry area where you talk to the money person first. And she says, well, are you going to pay cash or are you going to bill it to your insurance? And I said, well, how much does it cost? And she said, well, we don't know until it's done. And I said, it seems pretty easy to figure out how much it costs to cast a 10 year old's arm. I feel like this is the whole purpose of this organization as it's called Children's Hospital. And she looked at me like I had three heads. And so we decided to do the pay cash. We just kind of rolled the dice and said, I think it's probably going to be fine. And uh, she said, well, now you got to make, you know, you got to call within 30 days and you have to set up a payment plan. And if you don't, then there's a big problem and da, 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 stuff. Okay. We, we promised to do it. And here's your deposit of $500 or whatever we had to put down. So the procedure happens. My son's arms fixed. We call the, the medical billing people and say, we've got to take care of this. And she says, well, you guys are all good. I said, no, 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 no. We have to do, there's a mistake. We have to set up a payment plan because I don't want to build through the insurance and, you know, because I don't think it'll be worth it. And also she goes, no, no, you guys are okay. And I said, I don't understand. She says, as a matter of fact, you paid too much. It was only $280. And I said, how much was it if you ran it through the insurance? And she goes, about $2,500. Mm-hmm. So the cash option was like one-tenth of... Mm-hmm. I understand some of that, right, for labor and collection and all that sort of stuff. There's got to be some discrepancy, almost like, you know, when you buy life insurance, you can pay the premium annually or you can pay it over, you know, monthly and it's just a smidge higher. But to have it be a 10x multiple just seems so grotesque to me. 
anyways, back to the point at hand. I like your idea, Diana, about if you have a low healthcare need presently, why even bother with the nonsense of trying to keep this stuff for, I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good observation for if you're putting $7,000 a year into your HSA as a family and your out of pocket is 400 bucks a year so far, just pay it with your HSA and forget about trying to save the receipts for 72 years. Just pay the 400 bucks and be okay with basically investing 6,600. But like you said, if the number's different or whatever, and you're trying to accumulate it, I, I think it makes sense. I mean, the rules are pretty clear. I, I'm with you. I don't think that there's been evidence yet of the IRS going, wait a second, prove to me that you use those healthcare expenses back in aught seven. But as this stuff becomes more and more prevalent, there likely will be some sort of, I don't know, reconciliation. Otherwise, what's to prevent everyone from saying all of this HSA money is 100% tax free, you know, forever. So it's, you know, it's pretty clear. You have to keep track of it. You have to keep your expenses uh, until you get the reimbursement. And then it's worse. You have to keep it for all the audit period past the reimbursement time, which is could be up to another seven years. So you just need to put this on a, you know, just get an Evernote or something and just Evernote these into a folder and let it be. Uh, the other thing that I would say about the HSA is I think we're looking at it from the perspective of looking backwards. One of the other benefits of it is that it can help offset healthcare costs into retirement. You know, Fidelity says that the average person who's 65 or average couple who's 65 is going to spend between 250 and $300,000 in healthcare expenses throughout retirement. So rather than looking at it from the perspective of like, how do I get all this free money from all my expenses that I've incurred you know, over the last 30 or 40 years, it might also be a good way to think about it as a bucket of money that you can use for all your future health care needs, retirement home needs, or uh, long-term care cost coverage and that sort of stuff. So that'd be another another way to use HSA in the future. I think we also have to think about what the worst case scenario is here. If you forget after age 65, it works like a traditional IRA. You're just going to pay tax on it when it comes out and you still got the pre-tax nature of the HSA. So instead of it being this, you know, no tax in, no tax out thing. And don't get me wrong, there's a huge difference between the two numbers, but it still is pretty kick ass if you don't do a great job with your receipts and you're okay with staying, you know, not using it till after 65. After 65, you don't have to prove anything. Say spend on whatever you want, Sal. Go take us all out for ice cream and does not matter. So highly recommend it. Go to the economy conference and pay for everybody, right? <laughs> you, you can do that with yes, your HSA. Please. Yes, absolutely. All right. That's going to do it for today. By the way, thanks, Sal, for that uh, question. If you've got a question for us, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail, and uh, we'll be happy to have the crew uh, answer your question too. And if you're brave enough to call like Sal did, he did leave us his email address, which means we're sending him a code for uh, for some SB swag, which is awesome. Very comfortable. Do you have any SB swag, Diana? Not yet, what but does that hell? mean you're sending me some? Well, yes. And I'll send you guys economy t-shirts. How about that? That's, Fair trade. <laughs> there it is. That's great. I've heard that ours are, well, I know ours are very comfortable. There's people that wear ours that don't even care about our podcast. They just like how comfortable the t-shirt is. It's a whole reason they wear it. Well, that was a nice humble brag. Yes. It is just, watch that flex. <laughs> the podcast is for shit, but the, uh, <laughs> right. but the shirts are amazing. <laughs> Uh, if we could only solve the podcast part now, that's going to do it for today. We'll have our guest of honor go last. Len, what's coming up at lenpenzo.com? I've got an encore uh, presentation uh, on my blog, a 
from seven or eight years ago when my son was 14, we had a discussion about free, you know, things that he thinks are free that really aren't free. And it was uh, he had a little epiphany that day. And I just kind of went over that conversation we had in the car and uh, just a just a nice little trip through memory lane, down memory lane uh, with me and my son and a little financial discussion. Len's like, I got on this podcast for free a decade ago and I'm still paying for it. (laughs) It's just just horrible. OG, how about you? What do you got going on this weekend? Uh, Pretty busy weekend, actually. Uh, Got a little uh, after school fun uh, coming up uh, tomorrow on Saturday. And then uh, then an oddly placed after school activity on Monday the 19th, early morning commute. You know, kind of mixing a little business with some pleasure. So that's having nice. some fun. It's a doing great some weekend. Stuff this, I like that yeah, weekend. Be, business at a slower pace. It's well, it's intense, but it's what I like doing. So it's not good. bad. That's good. Diana, thanks a ton for joining us again. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Well, so now that you're back from the Grand Canyon, you're rested and ready <laughs> to go. You're prepping for the economy conference. Tell everybody, how do we get tickets to it? Tell everybody what it's yeah. about. The Economy Conference has been described as a party about money. It's basically an event where it's rooted in financial independence. We talk about things like in the fire movement. It's been described as like the TED Talks. I'm doing air quotes here because we're not TED Talks. It's the TED Talks of the fire movement. November 13th and 14th of this year at the University of Cincinnati. You can get tickets at economyconference.com. And economy is spelled with an M-E at the end, not an M-Y, because I'm so clever. And also, Joe, you're going to be there, right? We've got something real special planned. And OG is coming, too. Oh, I didn't didn't know that he was coming, Joe. I didn't agree to that. (laughs) (laughs) That is 100% par for the course. Yes. Oh, G will be I get the there. invite taken away before I even. How about invited. that, man? We are going to help kick off festivities with a live show the night before. And then uh, apparently I'm on a panel. I'm probably. Yes. Ma- probably making the panel. Yeah. Well, and you know, you, I hear you talk about the fire movement all the time. So I have I no not. idea. I, I have no idea why we invited you, but it Just should be fun. I do not. It is <laughs> so untrue. We've got a couple other people there that I know personally, the Mr. 1500, Carl Jensen's going to be there. Yes. And he's yep. hilarious and uh, very insightful. And he and Mindy have done some fantastic stuff financially. It's a great story. And then Absolutely. Uh, I've gone on record a long time ago as saying my favorite blog on earth about money is Bitches Get Riches and uh, they will be there. Absolutely. And as you can see from the lineup so far that I really look for people that are as entertaining as they are informative. This is not a like stuffy financial workshop. It is it is actually a party about money. So I'm really excited about Bitches Get Riches. I think I may have convinced them to do some musical comedy on stage. So it should be pretty fun. That's awesome. Where can we get tickets? So it's economyconference.com. Awesome. And you know what? We'll link to it in the show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. All right. That's a wrap for today, everybody. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our roundtable. Your thoughts on money will be constantly evolving. Just remember that it's typically easier to spend more than less. So think deliberately before you loosen up. And remember, it's not bad to spend on things you value. Second, take a lesson from Quantic Bank. With cryptocurrencies becoming more mainstream, you'll have more opportunities to pay and get paid in crypto. That the big lesson?
I guess that old coaster thing got me a bit more worked up than I thought. You know, the neighbors came over to make sure everything was okay. But this, is, it was just a fluke. I'm totally a new stressless man. I mean, it's never going to happen again. As long as Joe continues to use a coaster, it's not going to happen. To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To learn more about our roundtable, for Len Penzo, just head on over to lenpenzo.com. To learn more about Diana Merriam and the Economy Conference, where you can see us live the night before the conference, just head over to economyconference.com. To learn more about MetPro, use our link metpro.co slash sb that's metpro.co slash sb this show is created by joe saul Cihai, produced by karen rapine and engineered by the amazing steve stewart online visit us on twitter at s benjamin's cast or on our facebook page i'm joe's mom's neighbor doug and I'm a lot deeper than you realize. In fact, sometimes I just stand in front of my mirror and reflect. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. So somebody, there was a blogger recently that said, skip the Grand Canyon. What did you think? Well, you know, it's funny. I haven't gone yet. I'm leaving on oh. Wednesday. So I don't... <laughs> You're going to say no. It was you awesome. You said this was going to air on the 16th. So after, you know, <laughs> at that time, I would know. All right. Yeah. Take it, Diana. Just, 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 just say, take, a, take a stab. Take it, a stab. It's awesome. You. Don't miss it. It's epic. <laughs> okay. Three, two, one. Oh, it's awesome. It's incredible. Don't You got to go. Tell Looks us about like every other hole in the ground. <laughs> That's right. Hey, tell us about the flowers you saw while you were hiking, Diana. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of the uh, the park ranger? He gives a tour. You know the guy. You know, it's, it's funny. I just thing. recorded something for my podcast about going on vacations, and I talked about this epic trip I had to the Grand Canyon, and I haven't gone yet. You got no clue. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, 
you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.